October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, Episode 18, The General Conference. Last time, we talked about the influence of the Civil War on the efforts to organize the church. In the context of the war, the case made for organization was clearer than ever. Organization was needed so that the mission of the church could go forward, so that pastors could be given licenses, which was important to have some quality control over who was preaching what and where. And organization would help financially, too, as a state conference could pool money to support preachers with tents that would go around each summer, rather than relying on whatever spare change local churches happened to want to give. We also talked about the organization of the first state conference, Michigan, woohoo, at a conference meeting in October 1861, which was a huge, huge deal. So let's pick it up there. With Michigan Conference now established, other states began to fall in line and organize themselves into conferences as well. States like Minnesota, Iowa, New York, and Vermont. Getting a small group of people in Michigan together, mostly from Battle Creek, mind you, to declare a conference was the easy part. You can declare yourselves to be whatever you want. But then you have to go from church to church in Michigan and these other states to persuade each congregation to agree to unite together and form a conference. So 1862 was a crazy year for James and John Loughborough. Loughborough was especially in high demand by believers from other states who wanted his expertise to help them organize themselves into a conference. John Byington helped as well, and in the whole year they managed to legally incorporate 23 congregations. Of course, our lovable Loughborough also did a huge portion of preaching that year. In June, he stumbled upon something magical, newspaper advertising. He found that his attendance began doubling. Perhaps a little tongue-in-cheek, he said, quote, If we put our faith into a nutshell, probably few would look after it. If we act as though we had a message which we wanted the world to hear, they certainly will be induced to come in, if for no more reason than curiosity at first. End quote. Perhaps for the first time since William Miller's movement nearly 20 years before, these Adventists were getting positive press. Think of that. More than that, however, it was an initiation into the positive press loop. So a paper called The Republican first reports on the meetings that Loughborough is having. Then, as a result, more people show up. And this leads the other paper in the area, the Eaton County Argus, to report on how popular these meetings are, which just leads to more people coming and then more newspaper coverage on the meetings. Loughborough and Moses Hull, his teammate there, anticipated on having 200 people show up. At their height, they had 1,200. The newspaper advertising also brought out some of the leaders of the town they were in, that is, Charlotte, Michigan, about halfway between Lansing and Battle Creek. James White headed up to Charlotte one weekend and referred to these leaders as, quote, the intelligence of the village, end quote. And I'm not really sure how anyone was meant to take that, so we'll just leave it there. It seems that two local preachers challenged Loughborough and Hull to a debate. First up, a Methodist preacher named Joseph Jones challenged Hull on the immortality of the soul. 
Formally, they agreed to six rules that would govern the debate. The arguments would be governed by Levi Hedges' 1824 book, Elements of Logic, specifically his Canons of Controversy, which were rules governing debates. Hedge was a Harvard professor, and the fact that the Methodist Jones and the Adventist Hull were alike familiar with this guy is kind of impressive. Hedge's canons included rules we would appreciate today. The debate had to be over a carefully defined premise. Both parties should treat each other as equals with respect and assume that both sides were earnest to know the truth. Hedge warned against making personal insults or diving into highly technical language that no one else understands. But most important is Hedge's belief that truth, not victory, is the object of a debate. That's probably more about Hedge's rules for debates than you ever cared to know about, but I just wanted you to share my amusement at how intense these rules were. Both Hall and Jones could choose a moderator, for instance. But then those two moderators would choose a third impartial moderator. Each man would speak for 30 minutes at a time, 42 times in total. That's 21 hours of talking for each side. Insane. Of course, they didn't always take up 30 minutes. That was just their allotted time. But that's a lot of time. I'm adding this debate to my list of things I would watch if I had a time machine. James White tantalizingly informed us that he had extensive notes on the whole thing, but couldn't share them with us because, you guessed it, one of the rules Hull and Jones agreed to was that neither side can publish the debate without both parties agreeing, which they apparently did not. That said, James couldn't quite help himself. His sarcastic, ebullient commentary on the affair is positively delightful. By all accounts, and by that I mainly mean Adventist accounts, Hull and Loughborough won the debates. A new church was started in Charlotte as a result, and Loughborough dutifully incorporated it into the Michigan Conference. Now, the Republican, which had dutifully reported on the affair, serves as an interesting side note. Its editor, William Saunders, sold the paper in 1863 and moved to California. In 1872, a full 10 years after he had reported on Loughborough and Hull in Charlotte, Michigan, he happened to attend similar meetings in Woodland, California, where Loughborough just happened to be preaching. Apparently unable to escape Loughborough, Saunders gave up and became a Seventh-day Adventist. But 1862 wasn't just about organization. A lively debate bubbled to the surface early in the year concerning the role of Ellen White. It's easy to believe in the prophets of the Bible because, hey, they're dead. But the idea of a living prophet is harder to swallow for a couple of reasons, at least. First and foremost, because there are a lot of examples of crazy people who claim to be prophets and were wrong. It's clear Jesus thought as much when he warned people about following false prophets. There's no reason to warn people about false prophets if there weren't also going to be true prophets, right? He could have just said, hey, prophecy is done, don't believe anyone who claims to be one anymore, thanks. So there's room for healthy suspicion for anyone who claims to be a prophet. But there's another reason I think we have a hard time with living prophets, and that's that it seems to have crept into our minds at some point that prophets are this mystical type of person who lived long ago and could do miracles and predict the future. 
And a living prophet may smell bad. They may make mistakes. The mistakes that Elijah made, by the way, um, get turned into parables and object lessons. And we don't think any less of Elijah for it. But would we still believe a living prophet if they ran away from God and got depressed and suicidal like Elijah did? Mm, Probably not. So I think it's safe to say that we have this expectation gap that makes it really difficult to believe in any modern prophets. Worst of all, these prophets may turn their guns on me and tell me that I'm doing something wrong. Remember the messenger party? Yeah. They loved Ellen White, so long as she was rebuking their enemies. But when she turned on them and told them that they were wrong, they suddenly discovered reasons to doubt her prophetic gift. So one of the key issues, one of the key questions that got bandied around the review in those early years, and it's a question that's still being talked about today in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, is whether you need to believe that Ellen White is a prophet in order to join the church. I mean, if you honestly think that Ellen White is a prophet, that God is speaking through this human being, why wouldn't it be a required belief to join the movement? It may surprise you to learn that this was never a requirement. And this is maybe why Adventists, despite what some haters say, aren't in a cult. In a cult, you typically have a prophetic leader who demands absolute obedience. But that's not to say that Ellen White viewed her guidance as her personal opinions or anything. And this is what led to the question, how do we reconcile this? In 1854, a man wrote to the Review asking about some rumors he had heard in a messenger party paper. Was it true, the man asked, that a number of people had been kicked out of the movement in Michigan because they didn't believe in Ellen White's visions? The publishing committee of the Review replied that no one was kicked out for not believing in Ellen White's visions. About a year later, in 1855, James White again took to the Review to assert that they weren't making belief in his wife's visions a requirement to join the church. Alluding to the earlier years of the review, where James didn't publish his wife's visions at all, he had this to say, quote, No writer of the review has ever referred to them as authority on any point. The review for five years has not published one of them. Its motto has been, The Bible and the Bible alone, the only rule of faith and duty. He then quoted something he had published way back in 1847, Then he quoted several issues of the review, all saying the same thing. Ellen White's prophetic gift was not a doctrine people had to agree to in order to join the movement. It just really ticked James White off. Now, he concluded, quote, If we choose to believe Mrs. W's views, which harmonize with the word, this is our business and nobody else's. But if we should leave the word and look for a rule of faith and duty by some new revelation, then it would be the business of the church to silence me as a religious teacher. End quote. Mic dropped. James White out, folks. You'd think that would be clear, wouldn't you? Not so much. By the early 1860s, John Loughborough was kind of like the Dear Abbey of the Adventist Church, a comparison I cannot take any credit for. But it sticks. In November 1861, someone asked why Adventists allow people to join the church who use tobacco, who dress immodestly, and don't believe in Ellen White's visions. Loughborough retorted that they don't take in people who use tobacco or, quote, reject the gifts of the Spirit of God, end quote. 
Now, you'll notice that Loughborough left himself some wiggle room there. He clearly believed in Ellen White's prophetic gift. It was that gift that drove her through the snow to walk on to get him back in gear, and there was simply no other way to explain that. That said, he wasn't technically saying that you had to believe Ellen White was a prophet in order to join the church. He was technically saying you had to believe in the gifts which the Spirit gave people, one of which is prophecy. Loughborough was walking a fine line between Ellen White isn't a test of fellowship and we believe Ellen White is a prophet people should listen to. As a result of Loughborough's article, several people wrote to the review to confess that they had been those people that told everyone that they believed Ellen White was a prophet, but never actually, you know, listened to what she said. But from now on they would, so they got the point, good. A few months later, January 1862, Uriah Smith reported that some people out there were still repeating the idea that Adventists required belief in Ellen White, and so he was going to settle this issue. Fine. Except Uriah Smith was probably trying to be too clever for his own good. That's my personal opinion. Smith tried to strike out in many directions at the same time. No, of course, faith in the visions isn't required to join the church. That said, he did have some words for people who professed to believe in the visions but then didn't obey. Smith said that there was no fellowship with that sort of person. Either you believed them and then did what Ellen White said to do, or you didn't believe them and ignored her. But then he dealt with people who said that it didn't matter whether Ellen White's visions were from God or not. Hold on, Uriah said. That is an important question, because if God is really speaking through her, how can anyone expect the church to say, meh, listen to God through her or not, who cares? So if you're a little confused about the intricacies of Smith's points, blame me for not explaining it well enough or blame the fact that this is a podcast and not a book. But the point remains that Smith was trying to thread an even tinier needle here and make a very fine point indeed than Loughborough was. Both men were trying to balance out the tension between the Bible and the Bible alone and we have this person we believe has the gift of prophecy and tells us what God wants us to do. And despite their hearty efforts to walk that fine line, it was perhaps inevitable that someone should think, whoa, Ellen White is a requirement to join your church. A W.H. Ball wrote the week after Smith wrote his article, but was actually responding to Loughborough way back in November. Addressing James White, Ball listed a few passages where he thought Ellen White was wrong, which would thus prove she's not a prophet at all. Ball was a kind of a strange bird, if you ask me, because, you know, one of his problems with Ellen White is that she wrote that in heaven, quote, the saints used their wings and mounted to the top of the wall of the city, end quote. Ball's problem was that the Bible never says human beings are going to have wings in heaven. We were created in the image of God, and God doesn't have wings, right? Uriah Smith replied, and was kind of dumbfounded by this one, I mean, it's one thing to contradict the Bible, and another thing to talk about something the Bible doesn't really talk about. In any case, Smith wrote, Isaiah 50.31 says that they shall mount up with wings as eagles. And so do with that what you will, Mr. Ball. Ball was also kind of strange because he said he wanted to know the truth of these things, but he concluded his letter with a postscript, which basically said, if you guys don't publish my letter, I'm going to send it to another newspaper. 
Well, there was only one Seventh-day Adventist paper, or at least one publishing house, so he clearly meant the paper of another church or group. And what would be the point of that except to throw mud at Adventists? I mean, if you wanted to know the truth about Ellen White, ask the Adventists, not the Baptist or whoever. In August 1883, G.I. Butler, the president of the church, addressed the subject with great clarity. Say what you want about Butler, and we'll have plenty, trust me, to say about him, but that dude could be balanced and make things very simple when he wanted to. Our enemies, he wrote, quote, try very hard to make it appear that we make the visions a test of fellowship. They must know themselves that this charge is false. Our leading men have never done this, and the visions themselves teach that it should not be done. It would be most absurd and impossible to do so, even if we would do it. With people in all parts of the world embracing our views, who never saw Sister White or heard of her, how could we make them a test of fellowship? End quote. So, any questions on that? The crowning moment as far as the organization of the church occurred in October 1862. As we've said by now, several other states had formed conferences, and churches were being legally incorporated all over the place. But October was the first annual meeting of the Michigan Conference. When the roll was called, it was found that 16 or 17 churches comprised the Michigan Conference, with a membership of about 416. I'll try not to bog you down in all the details, because our main event is still six months ahead of us. But some of the things this first Michigan Conference meeting discussed is interesting. They resolved, for instance, that all pastors should record what they do each week and bring that report to the conference each year. Some hot potatoes were tossed around, too. Should we accept people who got divorced for a reason other than adultery and then remarried? Should those people be members? That was referred to a committee. Should Protestant pastors who joined the Adventist church and immediately resumed baptizing and teaching others? Those pastors, they decided, should be licensed by the conference. That they were previously a Baptist pastor or whatever doesn't matter. Should pastors who aren't ordained yet, young people just starting out, be allowed to baptize? The answer to that one was no. That settled, they scheduled their next meeting for October 1863. Curiously, they also invited delegates from other states to meet them. That would make it a general conference. And this is a subtle but key turning point in the history of the Adventist organization. Because this was no longer a meeting of representatives from individual churches, but representatives from conferences. Although delegates could come from churches where there was no conference yet, a hierarchy was being established. And if you wanted to have a voice in the upper levels of the church, it was increasingly less a matter of journeying to Battle Creek once a year. Now, you had to be elected to your own conference and then chosen as a delegate to go to the general conference. And that's more or less how it is today. That's just what organization does. You used to be able to walk into the White House and talk to the president. Now, go ahead, try it. James gave several reasons of why a general conference was needed. One big reason was that preachers were largely confined to Michigan because Michigan was the headquarters. The Michigan Conference had no authority to decide which state needed how many preachers. So James dreamed that a general conference, an organization over all of the state conferences, 
would be able to take the whole picture in view and strategically move resources around the board where they were most needed. As we said last time, this move toward organization was influenced in part by the Civil War. It couldn't be left to states to make uniforms and train soldiers and send them wherever they felt like. An organizational level higher than states needed to look at the map and distribute these war resources wherever they were needed. And if James White was going to win the war of efficiency, he needed to have the same thing. By the first week of April, 1863, the Michigan Conference couldn't wait anymore. So they announced that the General Conference meeting would be May 20th and not later in the year in October. All in all, 20 delegates showed up, and 10 of them were from Michigan. A constitution was drafted that sounded just a little bit like the United States Constitution. Its preamble read, quote, For the purpose of securing unity and efficiency in labor and promoting the general interest of the cause of present truth and of perfecting the organization of Seventh-day Adventists, etc., etc., etc. Twenty articles followed. There was to be a president and a secretary. Hmm. Now, who should be president? Well, who else could they elect but James White? And they did it unanimously. The guy deserved it. So James White was going to be president. Uriah Smith was going to be secretary. John Byington, James White, and John Loughborough were going to serve on the executive committee, and that was going to be the first general conference. Except James White turned it down. A passionate discussion followed, but James held firm. James felt that people might accuse him of grasping for power, that this whole organization thing that he had initiated years before was just a ruse for him to gain greater control of the church. So, rather wisely, James refused to be the first president of the General Conference. In his place, as the first official leader of this church, John Byington was elected. You're thinking, Byington, Byington, yeah, that sounds familiar, but who's that dude again? I'm glad you asked, because it's worth taking a minute or two to sort him out, because he's awesome. John Byington was one of those leaders who stayed out of the spotlight, kind of like all of those people who signed the Declaration of Independence, not named Adams, Hancock, Franklin, or Jefferson. Born in Vermont, Byington was the son of a Methodist preacher who had helped found the Methodist Episcopal Church. So it was fitting, I suppose, that John would eventually become a preacher himself, and be the first leader of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Denomination building was in the blood. 1844 became a big year for Byington, but in several ways. Yeah, the William Miller thing. But Miller doesn't seem to have brought him on board as he did with Bates and the Whites. What Miller did do is get Byington interested in Bible prophecy. But the other thing that happened in 1844 was a huge rupture in the Methodist Episcopal Church, over slavery. The church split along geographical lines, with southern believers leaving to form their own Methodist church. And you don't need to wonder what side Byington came down on. Byington was perhaps the most hardcore anti-slavery member of the early Adventist church. Johnny B. joined several short-lived political parties whose main goal was to end slavery. And when the Republican Party was formed in 1854, he joined it. His brother had been kicked out of his church for leading an abolitionist view. That same brother canceled his subscription to the review because he didn't think Uriah Smith was hard enough on slavery. John, meanwhile, 
signed petitions to end slavery that were sent to Congress. He chaired abolitionist meetings and even opened a station on the Underground Railroad. Byington was a good friend with Sojourner Truth. And as I've said, every Avenist was an abolitionist, but they were mostly content to cry out against slavery in the review. For John, that wasn't good enough. But John didn't harangue the rest of the church to be more like him. He became an Adventist in 1852 when a friend gave him a copy of the review. He read about the Sabbath, and that was the end of his spiritual exodus from Methodism, being baptized on July 4, 1852. In 1858, James White himself, newly moved to Battle Creek, urged John and his family to join him. That John did, but he was never fully integrated into the culture of the church. He didn't write long articles in the review about doctrines. He attended church, of course, but he also attended a Methodist church and still subscribed to a Methodist paper. Some have called him a Seventh-day Methodist. He bought insurance policies at a time when a debate raged in the movement over whether buying insurance was a lack of trust in God. He ate meat. He drank tea and coffee. When the review authors regularly railed against people who did that sort of stuff, and we'll talk about that later. Byington didn't pick a fight with anyone about these things, and no one picked a fight with him. He was very much a part of the Seventh-day Adventist church, but maybe only had one foot inside Seventh-day Adventist culture, if that makes sense to you. You could say he was the first Badventist. As president, as with every other affiliation with the church, Byington did not receive a salary. He was a successful farmer, a really successful farmer, and so he really didn't need a salary. He was a big fan of organization, naturally, and when he became the first General Conference president in 1863, he was 65 years old. So, in a sense, he stepped into the role Joseph Bates had, that of a wise old leader who didn't interfere with the younger leaders, but was always willing to serve. John Byington's election came at the right moment, because Avenus soon realized that the Civil War wasn't something they could watch from a distance. In March 1863, just a couple of months before Byington became the first General Conference president of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Lincoln called for a draft. Despite the fact that the most hardcore abolitionist was now at the helm of the Adventist Church, he faced a serious dilemma. As did Loughborough. When Loughborough pitched his tent in a certain location, he pitched it in the field where some soldiers were training. The landlord of the field that Loughborough had pitched his tent in asked if the troops could use the tent to hold a rally for the war. So slowly it dawned on the Adventists, the peril that they faced. Decisions like these could open doors or close them, and it seemed that all of the options would win the admiration of one half of the country and the hatred of the other half. As we said, the Methodist church split in two over slavery. Good grief, the entire country had split in two. All of these big decisions about organization had been made over great opposition because the mission demanded it. To go forward meant to organize. No matter how much Adventists hated slavery, they wanted to stay neutral on political issues for the sake of the mission. But now, they were feeling pressured to take a side. And this should be interesting. Hey, it's me again. If this episode 
didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.